Games rated E to M. Welcome to Nintendo Power Podcast. On this first episode, we look back at Nintendo Switch in 2017 and discuss the creation of The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild with the game's developers. My name is Chris Slate and I'll be your host. I was editor-in-chief of Nintendo Power Magazine for five years back during the Wii era. But way before that, back when I was a kid, starting with the very first issue, I was a subscriber to the magazine. So. Nintendo Power has always meant a lot to me, just like I'm sure it's meant a lot to many of you, and it certainly means a lot to many of us here at Nintendo of America, which is really why this podcast exists. It's a passion project for many of us here because we really wanted to see the Nintendo Power brand come back in a fun way, and we also would love the chance to share our personal views, which is, you know, we just talk Nintendo here all day anyway, so it's, it's another opportunity to do that. And now the content to start with is going to be a little bit experimental, the same with the format and the frequency. We're going to be trying to figure out exactly what the podcast should be, and we would greatly appreciate your feedback. You know, let us know what you like, what you didn't like so much, what you'd like to see more of, and I'll tell you how you can share that with us uh, at the end of the episode. Now, in just a little bit, we're going to talk to the producer and the director of The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, and we're going to get to ask them about a lot of stuff about how the game was made, everything from why weapons break to why they added a motorcycle of all things to the game. But before we get to that, I'd like to look back at Nintendo Switch in 2017 with some friends of mine here at Nintendo. First, we have Kit Ellis, who you'll know is the co-host of Nintendo Minute. Thanks for having me. I uh, grew up as a huge Nintendo Power fan, so this uh, really means a lot. Well, you are now an honorary Nintendo Power member. Finally! <laughs> and then next we have Damon Baker from Publisher and Developer Relations Team. Hello, it's an honor to be on the inaugural broadcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for coming. We, we love having you. And as I said, we want to talk a little bit about Nintendo Switch in 2017. You know, it, it launched in March, so it wasn't necessarily the first full year, but it was the first calendar year, I guess you could say, for the system, and a lot happened. And, you know, it would take quite a while to go through every beat of a Nintendo Switch in the year. So what I'd like to do is discuss for each of us what, what's the moment, what's the thing about the year uh, of Nintendo Switch that we'll remember the most and that we'll take with us. Chris, I just want to say it has dawned on me that we're essentially the opening act for Mr. Onuma and Mr. Fujibayashi, which, you know, if they're like the, the eight-course gourmet meal, I'm hoping that we can be like a breadstick, at least. <laughs> yeah, with, a, with a soup or the side salad. Yeah, oh, well, yeah you're talking big. <laughs> My thing uh, that I would take away from 2017, um, and there's a lot to choose from, but uh, just personally speaking, um, I was really blown away at E3. I, I've been to many, many E3s over the years, and uh, and you know I always love going. Obviously, if you're if you're a gaming fan, it's it's uh, it's basically like Christmas in July or June rather. And this year, um, you know, we had a very interesting booth at Nintendo. We had the uh, Super Mario Odyssey design with all the little photo ops, and and um, you know we were fortunate enough to have a lot of people really interested and want to come play the game. I was really impressed with how it turned out, personally speaking. And that's something that, uh, when I think back on the year, those visuals, those memories really come back strongly. What, what is your personal E3 count at this point? What are you up to? You know, I, <laughs> I could, I'm not even sure I could tell you how many Lost there's count, been. Yeah. It, it's basically all of them, but maybe four. There was a short period of time uh, where I, I, I didn't go, but uh, I was there for the first ones and, and for most of them. So... Yeah, it's been a lot, but it's great, been great to see how the show evolved and then to see how, um, you know, from within Nintendo now, how Nintendo evolves its approach every year. 
I always find it very interesting to see that process work out. Um, you know, and this year we had, uh, uh, the, we were fortunate enough again to have so much attention at the booth that um, on the second day, we, it was interesting to see how the team there restructured the lines to make sure more people had an opportunity to play and to the point where we even had to have some Marines on hand to help organize um, everyone because there was so much interest. So, um, you know, it's great to just kind of be a fly on the wall and see all of that happen. And then specifically for me, um, you know, being such a big Mario fan myself, I, I was really interested to see uh, Super Mario Odyssey and to learn a lot more about that game. And when that trailer showed up in the Nintendo Spotlight and you saw for the first time the capture mechanic and then you heard Jump Up Superstar for the first time, which would say stuck in my head for the whole rest of the year. <laughs> um, that's also another personal highlight moment for me. You know, it seemed like an extension of the year previous where we were focused on uh, Breath of the Wild, and we really themed out the booth around that game. This year it was Super Mario Odyssey, and it was interesting to see people, you know, coming to play the game, but then sticking around to just be in this space, mm-hmm. this this kind of recreation of New, New Donk City that we'd made, and we had some, you know, really fun uh, elements um, from the game that were brought to life. Um, we had a, a, a real-life Goomba stack, so I learned that I'm about 2.75 Goombas tall um, <laughs> myself. <laughs> but, I, you know, I think that's something that... Uh, is special about the Nintendo E3 booth. It's a place where p- people come to congregate, and of course they come to play, but it's just got a really good feel to it. Yeah. Uh, whenever I'm participating in E3, it's usually behind the scenes, uh, and we're you know doing a lot of meetings uh, with uh, with our third party partners. But it's always telling to me. I'd love seeing these major producers for for franchises, um, like trying out a game like Super Mario Odyssey for the first time. Like you can always tell um, a producer or um, uh, a game creator because the first thing they do is they like grab the controller and then they press every single button to see what it does. And and they're just trying all the mechanics and you, you might see like a moon in the distance. It's like, no, just go over there and get that moon. Um, but they spend like 15 minutes like trying every single possible move scenario that they can conjure up. Something else I think is really special for us about E3 is, you know, get, getting to see the developers, um, you know, watching people play their games, seeing their reactions of, of you know, being amongst their peers um, and having some special moments with them. And I had one um, with Mr. Yabuki, who's the head developer of ARMS. And he's not somebody that I had had much time to, to spend with previously. Obviously, I knew who he was. He was in the, the January uh, live stream. Uh, and he's been involved with the Mario Kart series before. But um, we were going to shoot a Nintendo Minute video with him. And we were sort of getting ready for that. And he's like, well, what do you guys want to do? And we were sort of talking through some ideas. And he's like, well, how about if I just show you how I play this game? And we're like, oh, this is like a personal tutorial from, you know, the lead developer of the game. Yeah, we're not going to pass that up. And he was just so warm and so engaging and, you know, had just this really personal way of showing us how to play the game. And we had just so much fun playing with him. Like we, we each went, you know, head to head against him. And he was really, you know, clearly not pulling out all the stops to beat us. He didn't need to either. Um, but it was just, you know, it, it gave me so, so much more insight into this game of, of you know, what he had, he and that team uh, had given so much in, into ARMS to make it what it was. That was a really special memory. He really rocked it on stage too during the ARMS tournament when he got up there and mixed it up with uh, with the, the competitors. And he was uh, pretty formidable. Yeah, we had that session before the tournament. So I was not surprised to see him turn it up um, when he went out to actually go compete. And those tournaments actually were another part that I really enjoyed about E3 this year. And and in particular, the, the huge upset during the Splatoon 2 tournament. Mm. I think everyone expected the Japan team to win because Splatoon is such a, a massive, um, you know, there's such a massive community around the original game in Japan. 
Um, but the U.S. pulled it out, and it was a it was a, a fun surprise, and the crowd was really into it, and and I was in there watching it along with everyone else, and and uh, and uh, you know that was just a lot of fun. I get to attend a, a pre-tournament, uh, I guess, mixer for those players um, a couple of days before the tournament happened, and I was really just a fly on the wall, um, but. I, I was really impressed with kind of the sense of community and sportsmanship that they all had. Um, you know, these were people who obviously from different regions who probably didn't know each other at all before. And they were just hanging out, taking pictures with each other, being really friendly. You know, it could have been a, a case of like, oh, this is a serious competition. I don't want, you know, don't don't talk to the other team. Don't give them don't give away your secrets. And I don't think they were they were doing anything like that. But everybody was just really friendly, having a great time. And obviously, once the tournament started, it got really serious, but people were, it felt like people were in it for the right reasons, having a great time and enjoying the game. That's great to hear. Yeah. Just having fun. Mm -hmm. And um, Damon, actually, what do you think you'll take most from Nintendo Switch's first year? Oh my goodness. There are so many amazing moments from this last year, and I feel like I've aged like an extra 20 <laughs> years getting through all of it. But um it's been an incredible year, especially on the third-party side of the business. The team over here in publisher and developer relations, we've just launched our 300th game. And like wow. you mentioned, it hasn't even been a full year yet. So uh, everybody's been really, really busy. But in terms of a moment, I, I would just say, you know, um, you know, third-party in general on, on Nintendo Switch and on Nintendo platforms, uh, it has been awesome to see the level of support from the publishing partners, from the indie community. Um, and, you know, this this goes all the way back to, you know, the participation in the reveals and those videos and the announcements of the Nintendo Switch platform in general and showing the level of support from uh, major publishers. But then also, uh, I got to say, it was, it was a privilege to be able to help announce you know, the indie support in that week leading up to the launch of Nintendo Switch and around that GDC timeframe. And uh, I know that there there was a lot of uncertainty in terms of what what is this um, catalog of content that's going to be coming over to the platform? You know, there, some things had been announced, but there was still a lot of stuff uh, under the veil of secrecy, you know, uh, to make it as impactful as possible. And um, to be able to go out with a, a Nindy showcase and to be able to show off all of these great titles and to see the internet turn positive for 24 hours. That was amazing. Like I was, uh, you know, you, you go to the forums and everything and you expect a little level of, of, uh, of trolling or negativity here and there, but the overwhelmingly positive response for Nintendo switch and for the type of games that we were bringing out and the, the indie developers and the publishers coming on board it was uh, it really felt like um, not only did we have something special, but that we were heading in the right direction from the very beginning. So it was a really encouraging way um, to start off and uh, been riding that wave ever since. It's been awesome. And you mentioned uh, 400 games. I'm going to assume you played all of those. Um, <laughs> are, are there any that, that really stand out from those that you have played, um, you know, as, as among your favorites um, of the year? Um. Well, let me correct you. It was 300. It feels like 400, but <laughs> we have 300. I've had a ton of fun with uh, with a lot of them. Um, in particular, you know, it's it's games like Floor Kids that just came out uh, from Merge uh, Media. It's Golf Story, 
uh, oh my gosh, it's it's so much fun. It, I just had a smile on my face playing through the entire game. Uh, SteamWorld Dig 2 uh, was incredible. Of course, uh, launching Stardew Valley on the system uh, was awesome to see the, the great reaction to that. Um, playing multiplayer Overcooked and making and losing friendships in the process <laughs> of playing that game. It's, it's been pretty cool. I mean, even this last year, you know, the outreach on Twitter to, to myself and, um, you know, if it, if, you know, the likes of, uh, Vertex pop with graceful explosion machine or uh, sidebar with, with golf story, if they hadn't reached out to me on Twitter, um, and we hadn't started that dialogue then we might not have ever seen those games, um, on the system or at least highlighted in, in the way that they were. So and that's something that when I was looking forward to Nintendo switch and, 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 you know, thinking about, you know, what I would potentially enjoy with the system. That's something that I didn't consider enough, I think, was the fact that there would be all of these great uh, indie games, third-party content in general. But for, for me specifically, personally speaking, I've really connected with a lot of these indie titles, especially Shovel Knight, uh, Treasure Trove, and uh, mm. as you said, Golf Stories, Stardew Valley, and some others. And I found it surprising when I look at, you know, between some of the, you know, traditional AAA titles and a lot of these indie titles, I've spent just as much and more time with the indie games. So, um, you know, I think uh, it's been great, too, to see the fan community really rally around these these developers and around these games. And to the point now where there's it's if someone wants to, you know, test market a potential icon for the for their game for the home menu, <laughs> it becomes kind of a kind of a big moment, you know, in social media. Yeah, the game that I played first after I started to wind down with The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild was Mr. Shifty. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, it was something that I think I first saw and started to hear about around the time of uh, PAX East. And I didn't know much about it. And I thought, well, this might be a fun little, you know, palate cleanse after the hugeness of Breath of the Wild. And it actually ended up being one of my favorite games of the year uh, in a lot of different ways. It's a game I, I really enjoyed. And, and that's what I think is so, is so fun is you can go from, you know, the big sweeping experience of a Mario or a Zelda and then, you know, scale it down to, to really, you know, fit your, fit your mood, whatever you're in the mood for. If it's a multiplayer game, single player, you name it. Um, seems like we've, you know, there's, there's a lot of different options out there. And Shovel Knight's my go-to game on a, on a plane. Like, I've probably put uh, 75 hours into that game. And I'd already owned it for Wii U and, and the 3DS. But, and then the Switch version is also the one that, that got my, my son hooked. He's only seven, so this is kind of uh, his, uh, after the Mario games, his next step up. And he got surprisingly good at it. It can be a tough little platformer. Um, <laughs> but now he's, you know, he's, he, we got him a Plague Knight plushie doll, and, and uh, he just wants, like, a Shovel Knight birthday party. And so... Um, yeah, it's just a, it's just so much great content there to pick from. Oh, it's amazing! Like uh, you know, especially brands like and franchises like Shovel Knight. Like you know, they're so instantly recognizable now. They've grown to be such uh, big, huge games that like you know, I I, I showed off my Switch uh, uh, to some friends that were over, and they had a five year old boy. And he was freaking out because he was like, oh, my God, you have Shovel Knight? Like, uh, let me let me play. I was like, how do you even know what Shovel Knight is? <laughs> I mean, it's just it just it makes me smile um, to see people recognizing these games and, and enjoying them like we do. It's cool. 
the other thing I'll say on this topic is it's interesting to see how some of the games that came out first on other platforms have sort of this second breath, um, given the multiplayer focus of Nintendo Switch. So something um, that really resonated with me this year was uh, Lovers in a Dangerous Space Time, which is a mm. you know hugely multiplayer focused game that I was aware of before, but I thought, well, it might be tough to round up you know four people to really you know play this in the optimal way. But you know, I've, with Nintendo Switch, I found myself playing it on an airplane or on a trip, or it, it was just so much easier. And again, that was a game that, you know, is probably pretty high on my, you know, personal uh, list uh, of the year of, of games I enjoyed the most. Uh, good call, man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it's been really cool to see uh, some of these multi-platform titles coming over. And even if they've been out for a little while on on other um, systems, then to see that they really resonate so strongly. And, and it's like you said, Kid, I mean, you know, if, if a game really embraces the multiplayer uh, aspects uh, of the system or or the portability of the system, those are those are the games that end up um, really shining uh, on Nintendo Switch. Now, Kit, what would your big moment from uh, 2017 be? Uh, well, I'm going to be Captain Obvious and talk about Super Mario Odyssey and uh, The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Um, and obviously, you know, a lot of people have been talking about these games this year, but I think if I were to look back on them and, and kind of what they meant for me, it's how they reshape my perception of those two series uh, individually. Uh, and we can start with Zelda. And to be honest, you know, I would, you know, people always say like, oh, are you, are you more of a Zelda person or more of a Mario person? I would always identify more on the Mario side, um, just because that sort of, you know, freedom of platforming, that that openness of movement is what really, you know, has always drawn me into Mario. But I think with, with Zelda, you know, this is really uh, the Zelda game that I have always wanted in that it's got that open aspect of the exploration, um, and it's really about making your own adventure. And, you know, as I think about it, you know, I've always considered, you know, the jump from Super Mario World to Super Mario 64 to be just incredible as far as, you know, how they, you know, the team took what was previously a 2D game and trans translated it into 3D in a way that really, you know, um, you know, established a lot of the conventions for that genre going forward. You know, it feels like there was something similar going on with Breath of the Wild, where, you know, the Zelda series had been on a path for a number of games and it, you know, Breath of the Wild was in some ways, a lot of a reboot, uh, where they were starting over, introducing new mechanics, um, new systems, and uh, in some cases, which were, you know, risky if you think about it, like a, a cooking system or a climbing system, uh, really um, yeah, introducing new things that, that hadn't been a huge focus of the game before. So just thinking about that and thinking about, you know, how people still to this day are uh, finding new things in that game. Um, you know, there was so, so little hand-holding, so to speak, in that game. Um, I, 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 uh, for me, it, it really kind of transformed the way that I think about the series. Yeah, for me, the the launch of of Nintendo Switch in March is is what I remember from that the most is really the stories everyone was sharing from the Breath of the Wild, how everyone was playing the game in a different in a different path, different pace. Everyone, you know, had their own weird things that happened to them while playing, and it was fun just to come to the office and hear what you know, trade those stories, find out what happened to you, then I might try to go home and see if I could recreate that myself. And um, I don't know that I've felt uh, felt that from a Zelda game to that degree since the very first Legend of Zelda on the NES. And and uh, I know we've talked and the developers have talked about how um, that game was in some way an inspiration for this game. And I really think in, in the best possible way it got back to that freedom of exploration, that idea that you, you couldn't necessarily guess what was going to be coming up next. And Super Mario Odyssey, I mean, you know, I, I would agree with you that, you know, 
usually Zelda and Mario for me are neck and neck in terms of my favorite series, and Mario, more often than not, edges it out a little bit. Um, but uh, one thing I'll say about uh, about Mario Odyssey is that for someone like me who's played you know so many Mario games, all the Mario games essentially, to be able to have those moments where if it's something that's maybe as an obvious callback, like the the festival in Yudong City, uh, where you, you just feel that that love and that that appreciation for the whole history of the franchise, going all the way back to Donkey Kong, um, even to even something that's less obvious, maybe like um, when you first start uh, Cascade Kingdom, the Second Kingdom, and you you hear that that music that really just feels like you're starting a grand a grand adventure. And it's not the same. It's a very a very new type of game, very new features. But I got that same feeling in, in that area of the game that I got when I first started playing Super Mario 64. This this kind of adventurous spirit, this freedom of movement, but not in the in the exact same way because, you know, Odyssey brought so much new to the table. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, can I jump in? Please. <laughs> <laughs> um, I what I loved about Super Mario Odyssey was also kind of to touch on on what Chris was saying is that sense of nostalgia. Like there were all of these callbacks, whether it was the different costumes and outfits or whether it was the 2D uh, pixelated gameplay elements to it. I mean, it was like all of these instances that that would call back to your childhood. And um, and, and it was always like almost like a, a mental pointing out of like, oh, my God, I remember that or oh, I remember doing this when when I was a kid or seeing this and and it was um it, it felt really engaging and that it was it almost felt like it was just for you um while you were you were playing through the game yeah to your to your point on Mara both of your points yeah that is the thing that stands out for me is the way that the game was able to balance nostalgia with things that were truly new to the series um and and i kind of kind of challenged what people expected from the series so i think new donk city is the perfect example you've got mario in this realistic setting people are saying well if that's a human what is mario you know we all went through that phase i think around e3 um but once the game came out and i started to play through it you know i started to see that other sort of layered element to it of you know there's that one part where you go into a theater and you go into the pipe and you are doing, you are playing uh, Super Mario Brothers uh, World 1-1 as this group of people mm-hmm. in New Donk City are watching. And I thought, wow, this is meta. This is kind of crazy. And mm-hmm. this is a cool callback. And then uh, the New Donk City Festival, um, I got about halfway into that. Um, once you go through the pipe and I, I literally had tears coming down my face um, because it was just such a beautiful callback to really the whole history of Mario and everybody's personal connection with the character in the series from the very beginning with Donkey Kong. And then you had the song playing and it was, you know, with the beautiful graphics in New Donk City. Uh, it just felt like this, this you know, culmination of everything that the series had gone through. And it's one of those things where, you know, once you, you get a little bit into it and you realize like, oh, this is not meant to give me a challenge. This is really a celebration and something that's meant to be savored. And I think there's a number of examples around the game that that sort of, um, you know, feel that similar way of just balancing callbacks to things that you know and really, again, challenging what you would expect from a Mario game. There's there's a boss fight that I, I might be a spoiler, so I'm not going to call it out, but it's it's definitely not something that you would expect to see from a previous Mario game. And it's done in a style that is different from what you've seen in a Mario game. But then again, there's always just these callbacks of these memories. And it's like, wow, I, I, I really am, am happy for Mario as a character to see him kind of evolve over the years. I, I, don't, I don't have 
you know, adult children. But I imagine for those people who do, it might be a similar feeling of, of watching this person kind of grow over time and, and really mature. That's kind of the feeling that, that it must feel like for these, you know, for, for Mario and for Zelda too. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm wondering why it took us so long to see Mario's nipples in a game. <laughs> <laughs> like talk about challenging expectations. That was, that was incredible. Awkward silence. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, yeah. I want to switch gears just a little bit. Um, it was great hearing everyone's comments about 2017. I'll definitely want to talk to you guys uh, as we get into next year and find out what new uh, you know moments really stand out for you. But before you go, I want to have a little fun really quick and actually um, you know uh, have a little quiz with you guys. Uh-oh. In Nintendo Power Magazine, there used to be a section called Warp Zone where we would take a look back at games that came out 10, 20, or 30 years ago. So I'd like to do that now and see if you guys can actually guess which games came out 10, 20, and 30 years ago. So to start with, we're going to look at 10 years ago. Now, this would be December 2007. So this is, this is Wii Days. Right, this is Nintendo Wii Days. Nintendo DS Days. Well, you're getting ahead in the clues. What? Uh. All right, so the first clue is <laughs> Sega published a long-awaited sequel for Wii that featured two kids and what looked like a flying purple jester. Any guesses? Um... Uh, what was the name of that? Uh, I know the series. I don't know the exact name of the game. I'll give you a half point. Trivia. That's correct. Knight's Journey of Dreams. There we go. It was mm. the only sequel uh, ever made to the original Knight's Into Dreams for Sega Saturn. All right, 20 years ago. Getting a little harder now. December 1997. I do appreciate that you're doing the math for us there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the math comes pre-baked in the Nintendo Power podcast. <laughs> Um, so Midway published a side-scrolling action game for the N64 that was a fighting game spin-off featuring a really cool character. Any guesses as to what that game might uh, be? Mortal cool Kombat Spot. Legend Sub-Zero. <laughs> Close. Oh, wait. No, it's not Legends. <laughs> Mortal Kombat Mythologies oh. Sub-Zero. I'm really racking up the half points here. All right. Here we go. Final chance. I want a bonus point for saying it was Cool Spot. <laughs> Every answer is just cool spot. <laughs> so 30 years ago, December 1987, clues. Capcom published a classic side-scrolling action game for the NES that had some of the most infamous box art of all time. It has to be Mega Man 1. Like there the you go, Mega, Mega Man 1. As only the uh, third-party guy could deliver. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, still think they should bring that box art back. Yeah, it's, it's gone beyond bad and come back around to exquisite. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, thanks again so much, both of you, uh, Kid and Damon, for being on the first episode. And uh, now let's switch over to my interview with the developers of The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. I'm joined by two people who know quite a bit about The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. First, I'd like to welcome the game's producer, Mr. Eiji Aonuma. Thank you for being on the show. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> and next, the game's director, Mr. Hiramato Fujibayashi. Thank you for coming. Hello. Uh, at this point, a lot of players have spent a lot of time with The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. So I'd like to go behind the scenes a little bit and find out how the development team came up with some of the game's features, characters, and other things. Uh, there may be some minor spoilers here, but we're not going to give away anything big, any big story points or the final boss fight or anything like that. Now to get started, first I'd like to ask what it's been like for the development team to see the game get such a positive response from players and critics. 
とにかくやっぱり嬉しいですね。So, first things first, I'm just very happy that Breath of the Wild is、um, positively viewed by players, and as a developer, it's the best thing we could ask for. So, obviously, we've been working on the Zelda series for a long time, but with this game, what we tried to do was break up a lot of the long standing conventions of the series. And so, we had questions about you know, how will fans react to that? And will we be able to attract new fans? And it was very scary because perhaps people would have you know, hated the game. Um, but in the end, we managed to garner a lot of support, and seeing that support has just been absolutely amazing. Starting with some of those、uh, new things, I'd like to start with、um, these new versions of Link and, and Zelda,、um, both from the way they look to the, way that they, the role that they play in the game.、Um, they're quite a bit different than what we've seen before, and I was hoping to find out、um, where those ideas came from for them this time and, and what the goals were with these characters. So, as for Link,、uh, we wanted to be,、uh, make Link look a lot cooler in design than Sky Resort.、Um, but also, we wanted everybody to be, be able to relate to Link, to like, be able to like him、um, in no matter what kind of form. So,、uh, we designed him that way.、Um, as for Zelda, we kind of portrayed her more like a sister like、um, figure, and not necessarily an age, but just kind of that maybe. A woman that's a little bit older or mature. So, actually, I think the first time we really kind of solidified the Link design or for this title, or we started to solidify it, was、uh, when we first showed a trailer for uh, the uh, then not yet titled、uh, Breath of the Wild. It was just you know, a new Zelda game, but、uh, you have that moment where、uh, you know, he's facing off against the Guardian, he jumps off the horse, and he pulls the arrow back and shoots it. And he, he has a, an expression on his face that's kind of. Kind of troubled, it's kind of sad.、Um, we initially were like going to have him have more of a, a triumphant look on his face, and we thought that doesn't really fit this link. He should look, you know, more、uh, kind of consternated, I suppose. And, you know, when we figured out that, oh, that's the face he has to have, a lot of other things for this link and his design and like who he should be really started to fall into place. はい。So at that time, we already had the story beats and the story ideas of Link being someone who's waking up from the past, doesn't know who he is. And coupled with that, having him be someone who was this kind of like go getter who's thinking, oh, yeah, let's go do this, let's, let's get this taken care of, wouldn't really fit with that, that background and that story idea. So it was really the relationship. 
uh, of those, the, the story beats and the story ideas we already had with his design that ended up influencing the design. And uh, we ended up with the link that we have. Continuing this theme of, of new changes for Link, um, obviously his actions in the game expanded quite a bit this time. Um, most notably, he's now able to climb anything in sight, and he also can uh, soar with the paraglider. And I wonder, um, at what stage of development did those ideas come about, and, and what were the um, original kind of uh, inspirations for those and, and the goals for those abilities? So when we think about the Zelda series, we first think about Link's actions. And so when you ask what, at what part we started thinking about it, it would be from the beginning. And that's when we started considering uh, Link climbing and paragliding. So since this game has an open air and the world is so open, we wanted to make sure that when the player uh, controls him or controls Link, uh, they could press the forward uh, control stick and can move forward constantly. And so we had that in mind while we were designing. So when we were making prototypes, uh, first we had Link go into the wall and then jump over um, walls or anything, and it just didn't feel right. So then we thought, hey, why don't we just make Link climb? And also when he climbed up the walls or mountains, he would, we would, he would climb, try to climb down, but we also thought that didn't really feel right. So then we had him just jump down, and that's how we kind of um, decided on doing that action. So in terms of those um, actions of being able to climb walls and then, uh, you know, glide places with the parasail, those are, I mean, those are kind of actions that had actually already existed that Mr. Fujibashi had created for the previous title, Skyward Sword, but they were, they were kind of separate actions in terms of how the game system worked. And what we really wanted to go for here was just something where, you know, if the player's out in the world and they push, you know, the, the control stick forward for movement, they just go. They can just go. They can just go forever. They can climb something up and then they can jump off and sail the parasail like they never have to stop moving and it just becomes one kind of consistent movement. So it was those two things, disparate things kind of coming together to become one uh, flowing movement and, you know, you know, me watching from the produ the producer angle, you know, I didn't totally understand, uh, quite totally understand it, but I, I was able to see that, you know, Mr. Fujibashi had, you know, he'd, he'd done this thing in a previous title. Um, he tried it once and, you know, he, he he still felt that there was something there that was worth revisiting and then for, you know, for him to come back to this title and then, you know, succeed in this way by, you know, kind of refining, you know, what he tried before, I, I, I think it, it, it owes a lot to what we did on previous titles. Yeah, I can definitely see the connection with Skyward Sword now that you mention it. Mm. Um, one thing, though, that I, as far as I can remember um, doesn't have roots in any other Zelda title is cooking. I think that was um, a brand new addition to this game, and I wonder where the idea for that came from. So when we talk about cooking, when we th were thinking about the game action and also the scenario, we definitely wanted to incorporate a feel of adventure. And in that big world, in the big field, we were thinking what could kind of portray that. And one of the things was camping or the survival. And so we thought it would be a great uh, element to add in if we could incorporate cooking. So initially when we were thinking about Breath of the Wild, it, the cooking system was much more complex, but we wanted to make it easy and fun. So in the final version, we kind of ended up with that pot system where people could throw in ingredients into the pot. 
さらにそのシステムはシステムなんですけど、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、そう、Um, for that reason, but yeah, it just made we wanted to make sure that the, the visual was also there too. So, obviously, in this game,、um, cooking is, is、uh, one of the main ways, or really the main way that you restore your health. And previously, you know, in Zelda games, you know, you would cut grass and there'd just be hearts, and then your hearts would get refilled. And now, in this game, you know, that's turned into you have to, you have to cook, which is obviously, you know, a very big change.、Um, Um, to talk a little bit about how that became you know, the healing system,、um, initially we had、uh, basically a hunger system in the game where Link would move around and he would just、uh, continuously get more hungry. And then if he got too hungry, he wouldn't be able to move anymore. And then you would need to cook something and eat something. And it was just a, a bit annoying to play because you know, you'd w o u l d move around a lot and then you'd be like, oh, I have to cook now. So I'm able to keep moving around. So it became more, more of a chore than anything else. So we kind of thought about, well, how can we make it fun and make it something that people want to do? And That's how we ended up making it the healing system. And I think, you know, if we just say, all right, in this game, you're going to cook to heal yourself, it kind of makes you think, well, why, why did it end up like that? But when you look at, like, you know, the development process, it, it ends up just being kind of a natural、uh, conclusion to, you know, the process of trying to get the cooking system in the game. It also seems that、um, it gives players a little more flexibility to, because of some of the stat bonuses, to approach things in different ways, or maybe even for more beginner players. A way for them to help them、uh, overcome some of the challenges. So I imagine that that was a, a, a goal as well. So, as for stats, we were thinking,、um, you know, a lot of the times we didn't want to add explanations. So, when people made the food, we were hoping that they would find Uh, no, new knowledge by cooking the food and seeing these bonuses, or you know,、uh, maybe imagine what when they cook, oh, perhaps this is what kind of the effect that this food will have. And so, we wanted pe- players to keep on finding new things or in finding new、um, information. And another new element of the game、uh, that I believe was new to Breath of the Wild were runes.、Um, obviously,、um, there were items and weapons in past games, but runes were handled quite a bit differently.、Uh, And, and one aspect of that was the fact that you get them straight at the beginning of the game. And I wonder how you came about with the,、uh, or rather, how you settled on the selection of runes that are in the game and、um, what that trial and error process was like in getting those just right. So initially, we were thinking about perhaps getting items like in the older Zeldas, just in order.、Um, but when we considered that this world was an open world and a free world where players can go anywhere, we thought perhaps providing them with what they need from the beginning was important. And especially if players are going to play not in order or not in a spe- specific sequence, at the,、um, we thought it would be very important to have these tools from the beginning. And so when we were thinking about items or runes,、um, we were thinking. Of perhaps doing that from the early stages of the development. And I think、um, just to touch on, you know, Mr. Fujibashi talked about this with cooking a bit as well, but、um, you know, we had a, a, a very strong kind of principle of this game that we didn't want to tell players what they could do with what they had. We just kind of give them the systems, give them the items,、um, you know. 
And you get them and you think, well, what can I do with this? And then you go out in the world and you, and you encounter different things and you, and you try different things out and then you kind of realize, you know, what you're able to do. Because you get those, those, those runes right at the start and you think, okay, well, what are these? And then you go out in the world and you travel around and you encounter lots of different things and you take out the runes and you try lots of different things and, you know, kind of you get your own hypotheses that you sort of test in the world and then you get that feeling, you know, when something works, it's just like, oh, I was right. I could do that. I thought I could do this. And I, I was right. And we wanted people to have that experience over and over again, just like constantly having things to test and then, you know, realizing, oh, that's what I can do. I was right. So continuing on the theme of, of new elements to Breath of the Wild that weren't in previous Zelda games, this is the first time where Link's weapons could actually break and um, you couldn't uh, reuse them endlessly. And of course, there were many, many more weapons in this game. And I wonder what the goal was with this new mechanic and uh, how the idea came about. So when we were thinking about weapons, uh, we considered that this world is a big open field and then we wanted players to go on an adventure and we actually called it a term as gravity as to pulling players into that world. And so if we were thinking, especially because it's a f- big world, um, but if we just let players just do whatever they wanted, they wouldn't really know what to do. So one of the things we thought about is, for example, if we place an enemy that dropped a certain weapon, then the player will be um, would feel like they want to go defeat that enemy. Because if, if it was really f- truly free and players could do whatever, they would probably just avoid it. So instead, they would be more um, inclined to go defeat that enemy and once they defeat it they would get a certain uh, weapon and that was scattered all over the uh, world so um, that was one thing that we consider when we were um, doing uh, thinking about weapons I mean, in, in terms of, you know, obviously, you know, making Zelda titles, uh, figuring out how to make combat fun has always been a huge challenge and how to, you know, how do we let players, you know, do what they want in combat? How do we make it fun? Um, you know, I mean, just pressing a button to swing a sword is, you know, obviously the most, it has the kind of right kind of reactive kind of feel, but it's also very simple. So we thought about ideas of like, all right, well, what if you have to do, you know, kind of more complicated button inputs to do different, uh, you know, different attacks or things like that. But it just sort of became too complicated and actually not very fun. So when we came up with the broken sword, I, the idea of like weapons breaking, um, you know, if you have this nice weapon, but you know it's going to break after a certain number of uses, you have to start thinking about when am I going to use it? What what enemies am I going to use it on? And that was really the way that uh, we were able to make uh, you know, the simple action of, of, of swords, swinging a sword in this game, you know, a bit more strategic, a bit more fun, a bit more in depth, even though you're just, you know, pressing a button to swing a sword. And I think this has always been a big challenge in, in Zelda titles is how to make uh, enemy combat fun. And I think you can kind of see, you know, just throughout the history of the Zelda titles, uh, how we ended up here is, is, is kind of, it's a conglomeration of all these like little different uh, challenges that we overcome, we've overcome over the years of developing the different titles. And along with the, 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 the wide variety of weapons, there's also a wide variety of, of armor, um, which are different types of costumes, essentially. And in previous um, Zelda games, you know, Link always had one or maybe a few set looks. I believe in past games it was possible to change uh, your outfit or maybe the color of your outfit. But this is, is um, much more than that. And I wonder um, how, what was the inspiration for, for that change? And also I'd like to ask if, if uh, each of you have... Um, a favorite costume in the game. 
For me, my favorite was Urbosa as well, but um, you know, now that the DLC, the second DLC is out, I think you know it's based on what happens in that story. Uh, I think I actually like Mitha the best now. Um, I think just kind of based on you know what you learn in that DLC, you know, how she ended up as, as the symbol that she is within the game. Um, you know, I think if people play it, they'll understand, but uh, uh, yeah, she's, she's my favorite now. Now, closing out this uh, theme of, of things that changed in Breath of the Wild compared to previous Zelda games, I'd like to ask um, how you arrived at the combination of shrines and divine beasts. Obviously, in past Zelda games, players might be more familiar with, uh, I guess, what you would consider more traditional uh, dungeons or you know, labyrinth-type uh, areas in the games, um, which you still get a lot of the same puzzle elements in Shrines and Divine Beasts, but it was a, a quite a different approach, and I wondered how that came about. So in the past Zelda games, um, one, like one dungeon was very, very long, and because this game had a very wide field to explore, and one of the themes that we had was finding things, and so we were thinking about what the ratio is for you know finding shrines while players um, wander around the field is good. And when we calculated that, we kind of ended up with 100 or more shrines. And as for size, we thought about perhaps making it long or uh, big uh, dungeons, but then that would take long and players would dedicate their time too long in the dungeons. So we thought perhaps one shrine is probably maybe 10 minutes worth of gameplay would be a good uh, amount. And when we considered that each shrine would take around 10 minutes, we thought that maybe for a Zelda title, you know, it wasn't enough. Uh, it wasn't meeting that dungeon feel for the game. So we thought maybe for this game, we could incorporate a big dungeon and perhaps one that moves or one that incorporates kind of a gravity um, maneuver, uh, movement or um, system. And so we considered a big dungeon and that's how we be, uh, thought about the Divine Beasts. And so initially when we were thinking about the Divine Beasts, we thought about something that could be seen from afar and maybe like a humanoid uh, form. Or, um, but then because these champions were controlling divine beasts, we thought, well, maybe it would be interesting if the divine beasts themselves were a dungeon. And so then that met the requirement of a moving dungeon and also uh, something that could be seen from afar. And that's how we kind of came up with the idea of the divine beasts. Um, so one thing to add about the shrines is that obviously um, when you discover a shrine, that then becomes a warp point for you. It's a place you can warp back to, which is obviously very important when you're, you know, have this huge game world to have, you know, areas that you're able to warp to. Um, and the reason we put that in is because if you discover a shrine but you're not able to finish it, and you think, oh, I'm just going to have to walk all the way back here at some point, that that's kind of a disappointment to players. So we decided, okay, well, we've got to have them be warp points. You've got to be able to warp to there. Um, and the way we came about, you know, decisions like that was, uh, you know, we didn't just, like, have all of this down on paper and then, you know, then make the game just based entirely on, you know, the design we had at the beginning. Um, you know, you know we, would, we would put things in the game and we would actually, you know, walk around the game world to try it out. And then, you know, realize, you know, as of this was like, oh, well, we've got to have that as a warp point or else, you know, people will just be annoyed. So that was really uh, the spirit in which this game was made, just like as, us actually playing it and decide and realizing, oh, this needs to be in there, too. I'd like to talk a little bit about a couple of monsters and um, to start with dragons. Um, when you first encounter a dragon, it's a very unique moment in the game and not at all what you'd expect um, based on what you've seen from dragons in past games. Um, normally, if you come across a dragon, you can expect a, a big fight, or maybe it's a tough fight you have to run away from. 
But this is almost, a, when you encounter a dragon in Breath of the Wild, it's almost peaceful. And um, it's a very unique experience, and I wondered what the inspiration was behind um, the use of dragons in this game. As for dragons, just like as I spoke just earlier, um, we wanted to incorporate something that could be seen afar, kind of like the Divine Beasts. And so we thought we definitely accomplished that with the Divine Beasts, but we also thought we could incorporate a little more and that would be great. And so we wanted to incorporate something that was a little bit romantic. And maybe it's because I'm Japanese or the team was Japanese, but um, instead of having that battle scene or something kind of adrenaline, something that will have an adrenaline rush. We thought something mystical, maybe something serene and kind of a different experience would kind of make the adventure for the player um, be more exciting. And that's why we decided not to make it necessarily like a battle. And um, just kind of addressing the kind of the idea of how Japanese people tra- uh, portray uh, dragons, we kind of th- wanted to incorporate that feel of like godliness um, or maybe something more serene. And so just in lots of uh, kind of Japanese folklore, there's often you know stories where you know uh, dragons are basically incarnations of, of God. So I think that might be part of the reason why we co- incorporated that in this game. Now, the exact opposite of a serene uh, feeling is when you encounter a Lionel in the game, which is very tense, almost like a boss battle. And in fact, um, they can even be uh, quite a bit more challenging than than certain bosses, uh, I think. And I wonder um, uh, what the inspiration there was, and was this meant to be um, kind of an ultimate challenge for the player? So uh, we thought of Lionel's because we definitely wanted to incorporate a strong enemy. But also we didn't want to make it so the player goes to a room and then there's a boss fight, kind of a um, set up scenario. We wanted to make sure that in Breath of the Wild it was an adventure. So players would randomly encounter these and suddenly have to um, be adjusting their situation and have that feel of adventure. And so when we're thinking of strong enemies, we remember that in the first Zelda game, uh, Lionel's were known to be the strongest one. And Lionel's never appeared in other Zelda games, so we thought we would refine the design and it would be a perfect fit for Breath of the Wild. Now there's a, uh, a character in the game who isn't a monster himself. His name is Kilton, but he apparently really, really loves monsters and, um, and even will, will sell uh, monster parts and some other weird items. And he's such a unique character that I feel there has to be a very unique story about how he was created. So when we were thinking of Kilton, um, so actually, we the planner that was designing him needed someone to sell unique items. So apparently it was kind of based on that planner. And so um, I think the designer probably made a sketch of the planner and then that's how maybe perhaps it kind of got uh, to become Kilton. <laughs> That's great. I guess if you're on the team, you have to be careful that you don't end up in the game yourself. (laughs) (laughs) So actually, when we were thinking of uh, designing NPCs, we had models kind of after uh, Aonuma-san and Miyamoto-san initially as just townspeople, and we just had like a bunch of Miyamoto-sans everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Now uh, changing a little bit to talk about um, some, uh, some of the locations from the game. Obviously, there's many, many places that players can go. Um, but there are two in particular that I think are very unique, uh, even amongst uh, the rest of the locations of the game. And the first is uh, Eventide Island, um, which is a place where um, Link can find himself. And it's quite a mysterious place. But, you know, up until that point, you spend so much of the game gathering items, gathering armor, becoming stronger, becoming more confident uh, as a player to take on bigger challenges. But then suddenly, when you arrive at Eventide Island, 
all of your equipment is removed and it's almost as if you're starting over again. And it prevents a very uh, fresh challenge in the game. And I wonder how that idea came about and, um, and what the goals were with, the, with that location. So initially when you start Breath of the Wild, uh, Link wakes up naked and the first weapon you ever have is probably a tree branch. And so by when I started the game, I definitely felt that adventure and survival when um, starting the game. And as the game progresses, it definitely feels a lot more safer because you have so much armor and equipment. So in the mid-game, of course, you could get to this island at any point in the game, but probably around uh, mid maybe the middle of the game, uh, we wanted to kind of go back to that initial feeling of survival and um, kind of a pressure and not knowing what kind of enemy you encounter. And so that's why we implemented that island for um, in the game. There was something like that in Skyward Sword as well, too, wasn't there? Yeah, um, I like to reset players from the beginning, I guess. <laughs> Now, another unique location is a town called Terrytown. And what's unique about this town is Link actually takes an active role in helping this town come together and be populated by uh, other uh, characters and, and, and to add uh, um, um, different buildings and such to the town. It gets built up over time through various side quests. Um, similarly, uh, Link also has a house that he can purchase and uh, outfit the way that he sees fit in Hateno Village. So I wonder um, what was uh, you know the goal with with these areas, and if if there was um, something specific in mind in actually turning over kind of the, the responsibility of these locations to the player. So originally, we wanted to make something that players can build on their own. The backside of that story is actually when we were uh, creating the game, planners wanted to create a part of a game or a challenge that could use game design tools and not rely on the programmer. So that's how Terrytown and also the house came about. Now. Like I said, building up those towns, I guess you can consider our side quest, and the game has many, many side quests, uh, you know, little adventures that Link can go on to help people in addition to the main story. And I wonder if um, either of you have a, have a favorite side quest in the game. If I had to pick one, I think shield surfing down the snowy mountain is my favorite. Um, why is because it kind of matches just the theme of Breath of the Wild where you have to reuse your resources. And usually you would use like a snowboard, but in this case you would be using your shield, your items. Um, and I thought that really represents how Breath of the Wild is and how you have to be resourceful. And also, it's fun. So, something that was particularly memorable for me is I think it's in Hateno village, uh, but there's a, there's, a, there's a girl there who wants, uh, I forget exactly why, but she, you have to uh, catch a bunch of crickets, just a, a bunch of crickets. And uh, I was, uh, so there was actually a time in the development of the game where basically the crickets weren't working, like you couldn't really find them in the game. And that was the case when I was trying to do this side quest, completely unbeknownst to me. I was trying the entire day looking for crickets, and uh, I couldn't find any. And then someone on the team told me, oh, yeah, that's not working in the build right now. And I was like, what? <laughs> so when it was finished, did you go back and have the satisfaction of finding all those crickets? I, I did go back and I was able to complete it, but even when they're there, the, the crickets are hard to catch, so it was, it was pretty frustrating. <laughs> Now the game is filled with um, little Easter eggs and and, and references to uh, to past games in the series. Um, you know, for people that have played a lot of the other Zelda games, I think they can spot certain things that seem a little familiar, maybe a little different. 
And I wonder if um, if uh, either of you have any、uh, if any of those stand out to you as your favorite references in the game. So people may have noticed, but a lot of the location names are actually kind of、um, based on past Zelda titles. But also, we did think about、uh, when we were thinking hills and mountains near Hyrule. Uh, castle, and we thought we would name them after kings of Hyrule. And so, you know, it's kind of if people are interested, it would be kind of a interesting thing to look at and perhaps think about why that is named that way. And so that might kind of add a different perspective while you play. Um, just to talk a bit, you know, on that note about the music. I mean, obviously, with all Zelda titles, we kind of have this kind of like you know, Zelda style of music, different like bits of melody that come back and are, are recognizable to fans of the series.、Uh, but with this game, we really did something totally different. And I think you know, there's a lot of people who probably play the game and they they think, when am I going to actually hear that that kind of some, something I recognize from the Zelda music kind of、uh, catalog and.、Uh, There are, but there are moments in the game, you know, that come at different situations where you get just a little bit of flavor of that. And one of them is, you know, when you get on a horse, you'll hear like just tiny, like a little bit of it. And I think, you know, finding that that kind of like musical Easter egg is something that's fun for people too. Now, this game,、uh, as we've discussed, has many, many new systems.、Um, it's a very, very big, expansive world. And then when you bring in all of the different play mechanics. I imagine this must have been a very challenging game to to test and balance throughout development. And I wonder how you went about that. So from the beginning, we knew that this was going to be a big scale project, and so we thought about adjustments from the very beginning. And so what we did was we would、uh, all the players' data from their PC collected into one and have it analyzed. And so once we collected that data, it would just display on one screen. And I think I mentioned this before somewhere, but we had 300 people playtest the game, and that information with their name and how many hearts they had or how many times they died、uh, would be just shown on the screen. Speaking about this broadly, so we would also be able to look at where these players went. So initially, you would see a cluster, a lot of people at the Great Plateau, but then they would disperse, and then we could take a look where they died, or we would also see some people just taking a completely different route than we expected. But it made the process very easy to、um, because we were able to see where players went in just one screen. Yes, what I will say. Um, and interestingly,、um, the the hero's path that was released, that that function that was released in the DLC,、um, you know, that's actually something that was initially a development tool for us to be able to, you know, track a player's progress, see, you know, what happened to them, where they went, and what they did. That we ended up, you know,、uh, kind of changing into a, a fun feature for players and releasing in the first DLC. Speaking of the DLC,、um, we now have、uh, two DLC packs: DLC Pack One and DLC Pack Two. And、um, they add a lot of new functionality to the game,、um, a lot of different things. And I wonder, what was the process like for、um, determining what would be、uh, given, or rather, provided as DLC, and、uh, and how did those concepts come about? For DLC one, we consider the people that have been already playing the main game, and we thought perhaps now they kind of want more of a challenge, and that's why we、uh, decided to release that one first. And for DLC two, we thought players would probably want to know more about the story, the story in depth, and so we thought why not share the untold stories about the champions, and so therefore, in the champions ballad, we decided to kind of incorporate that. I think for me the most interesting thing in、uh, DLC two is 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 the bike, the motorbike,、uh, which is actually、uh, a hobby of mine.、Um, but I think it was when we were just about to start work on the first、uh, DLC pack. 
And uh, I sent an email out to Mr. Fujibashi and some other people on staff saying, oh, man, I'd really love to ride a motorbike through that world, through the breath of the wild world. And the response, everyone kind of just came back and said, no, you can't do that. That's crazy. And I thought, oh, well, and sort of gave up. Um, but when we got to making the second pack, the second installment of DLC, I got to thinking, you know, we need to have some sort of reward. There needs to be something that we give the player when they overcome all the challenges in this new DLC. And, hey, couldn't we just give them the bike? We could give them a motorbike? And uh, Mr. Fujibayashi came back and said, well, Link never had his own divine beast. And, you know, this is not a divine beast, but maybe it could be something like a divine beast for 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 Link. And, you know, that kind of, uh, that kind of got him into the idea. Um, and so finally I got the bike in, and so I'm very happy about how Pack 2 turned out. So you're breaking the conventions of Zelda all the way until the end, right? <laughs> I remember because Mr. Onuma's uh, desk is right across from mine, so every now and then I'll just hear, the bike, the bike. <laughs> and so then I was like, okay, fine, how about, how about perhaps maybe a final reward in the game? That might not be a bad idea. A lot of what we've talked about has been uh, from the perspective of, of someone who has played many Zelda games and then come to Breath of the Wild. And I wonder if you've heard um, from players who, for, for them, Breath of the Wild is their very first Zelda game and what that reaction has been. So talking about uh, just uh, personally, a lot of family friends that usually don't play games um, came to me and told me, it's a great game, I really enjoy it. And especially because I was considering, oh, you know, um, Zelda is a hardcore game, but also, you know, uh, we wanted to incorporate like cooking and adventuring. Um, having people tell me that, oh, it was really fun, makes me really happy. Um, so for me, I mean, I have a lot of friends who are definitely uh, Zelda fans, but they're, they're parents and they, they they have kids who are not necessarily into the Zelda series but I've heard of a lot of uh, stories of you know you know maybe dad is, is playing Zelda and then his kids see it and they look what he's doing and they think oh I want to try that too and then they're really amazed at like you know what they're able to do in the game and all the different things that you're able to do in it um, and I think you know there's a lot of you know uh, kind of situations where other people like maybe it's brothers and sisters or parents and children like people can see people playing Breath of the Wild and get a taste of it that way and I think you know if you just see commercials or you just hear people talking about it I think I think Breath of the Wild uh, really shines when you see someone else playing it and you kind of see what's possible in the game. So uh, I, I hope people, you know, in the roundabout, they take out the switches and, and uh, play Breath of the Wild in front of people to give them an idea of, you know, what the game is, because I think that's uh, uh, really a, a good entry point into the game for people. Um, before we go, I'd like to ask, now that the, the DLC is done, what does it feel like to finally finish your work on this game, and, and what will you remember most about this project? So DLC may seem like done, but honestly, I have so many new ideas, and as a creator, I just keep on wanting to add more, and so that's always on my mind. Um, but the thing that really sticks with me is just how the process went of just creating Breath of the Wild. Lots of staffs incorporated many of their ideas, and that became one thing and a product. And so it was great to hear these ideas that we came up with, for example, cooking or adventuring. Um, being positively received by um, players and just that hard work of everybody. I'm only here to represent, but just all the people that work together um, made this product and just seeing that blossom is a really, really um, satisfying.
So, regarding the DLC, uh, I mean, this is the first time I've ever made DLC for a game. It's the first time, you know, a Zelda game has has a DLC. Um, so, it was very interesting to me, you know, kind of trying to think about, like, well, what should the DLC be? And, you know, how do we, you know, how do we add something to a Zelda game? How do you make DLC for a Zelda game? And it, and it really felt like a process of just continuing to nurture the same game rather than it just be ending you know you're still you're still working on it you're still raising the same the same baby in a sense and uh, I thought that was actually a really great feeling um, and I think for me the the thing that's most memorable about the whole development process is uh, you know we just did so many things that you know we've never done in Zelda tiles before or just haven't been done in, in games in general before and you know seeing that from a producer's perspective you know I kind of think oh that's that's it's pretty risky you know we're doing a lot of risky things but um, you know I wasn't really worried about it during development because I looked at the development team and even though we were taking all these chances and doing things we we'd never done before everyone was having fun everyone was having fun working on the game everyone had smiles on their faces and I think I think when you do things that are risky you know when that risk pays off you're just that much happier and I think that's the feeling you get playing the game as well. Like, you know, you take risks in the game and they pay off. You know, you try something you've never done before and it pays off in the game. And so I think it's really cool that, you know, we had that same sort of feeling making the game. And then the people playing the game have that same feeling as, as well. You know, we're, we're kind of in the same position. We kind of have the same joy and happiness for making the game and playing the game as well. And that's, that's something I'm, I'm really grateful for. Well, Mr. Onoma and Mr. Fujibayashi, thank you very much for your time. And uh, thank you very much for sharing your stories about The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this first episode of Nintendo Power Podcast. Once again, I'd like to thank our guests, Damon Baker, Kit Ellis, Mr. Aonuma, and Mr. Fujibayashi. Now, like I said at the start of the episode, you can really help shape the show and we would greatly appreciate it if you would send us your feedback, let us know what you thought of this episode, what you'd like to see in future episodes, and you can shoot us those emails at nintendopowerpodcast at noa.nintendo.com. Also, it would really help if you would leave us a review. That helps us get discovered by more people. And be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they're ready. Thanks for listening, and keep playing with power.